Welcome to As I Live and Grieve, a podcast that tells the truth about how hard this is. We're glad you joined us today. We know how hard it is to lose someone you love and how well-intentioned friends and family try so hard to comfort us. We created this podcast to provide you with comfort, knowledge, and support. We are grief advocates, not professionals, not licensed therapists. We are you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back again to another episode of As I Live and Grieve. I think you're really going to be encouraged by today's guest. It's another topic that, you know, we've touched on here and there, but I have someone today that I think is really going to offer some huge insight for us in the area of losing someone by substance use overdose. So with me today is Glenn Lord. Glenn, thank you so much for finding time to chat with me this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. If we could take just a moment before we get started with my questions, which I can sometimes have many, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your background, please. Certainly. Um, well, you know, my journey, I'm going to start it, and I promise I, I'll take, I'll speed it up a little bit, but I'm going to start it back in the 1990s. And in the 1990s, I had, I went, I graduated from college in 1992, and I graduated with a degree in marketing and operations management. And um, my goal was to be involved in hopefully at one point in my career to run a Fortune 500 company. And things were progressing very well. Um, Had a son in 1995 and all was well, progressing, moving up the corporate ladder. Everything was as I planned. And in many ways, I had had an idyllic life. And then in June 14th, 1999, uh, my son Noah died from complications of a tonsillectomy. And when that happened, it flipped my world upside down. Um, I had um, I had grown up in a family where um, it was a very death-denying family. Um, in fact, uh, you know, I, it, it, death, it, it sounds kind of odd. And for people who didn't live it, they might not understand what I mean. But people didn't die. And I don't mean they didn't die. They did. But they just kind of disappeared is kind of how people happened. And, and um you know, even to the point when my grandmother died, I found out about her death um, because I answered the phone and one of my relatives asked when the funeral was, and I had to ask my dad, <laughs> grandma died. And uh, that's how I was informed that my grandmother died, to which I did not go to her funeral or anything of that nature. It's just, yes, she died and we, we moved on. And that was the discussion. Um, so I kind of grew up in that world. But when that happened, I lost interest in, in doing everything I was doing and struggled for a few years, just kind of getting my own feet under me and figuring out who I was, where I was, what I was doing. Um, And I found peer grief support as what really helped me. I found the Compassionate Friends and um, got involved with the Compassionate Friends and um, found that it offered me a lot of hope. Um, And through all of this, I met um, some other, some, you know, really fine people in the grief and loss world and uh, realized about 2004, 2005 that I didn't want to do anything with corporate America. I dropped out of corporate America and I created a um, peer grief support uh, program called Walking with Grief, um, which is run in a variety of different um, hospices and churches. And it's actually run by the the military, too, and in a variety of different ways. It's out there. And um, I formed the Grief Toolbox. I got very involved with the Compassionate Friends. I became the uh, ultimately became the president of the board of directors of Compassionate Friends. 
And through this, I kept learning more and more about peer grief support. And um, even though it's not a formal practice, and you can't go to any university in America and get a degree in it, I was getting a degree in it by, by working in this field and um, working in it day in and day out with a variety of different people. And through this, I met um, my partner in the organization I'm in right now. His name is Franklin Cook. And we met at ADAC, the Association of Death Educators and Counselors. And when we met, we decided there was something there. Well, 10 or 15 years later, we figured out what that something was. And that formed um, that formed Sato D, which is support after a death by overdose. And um, we uh, Franklin had been doing some work with the state of Massachusetts, um, in kind of doing some exploratory work and it became very clear that um, in order one very large aspect of the epidemic that was not being addressed was the grief that was being left behind by all of the people who were um, unfortunately dying and um, so our organization is is sad od support after a death by overdose but it's kind of a misnomer um and uh you know, that, so we, we form support after a death by overdose because what it is, it's support after a death by any kind. So it doesn't matter whether the person died by overdose or whether they died by medical complications or it was a car accident or homicide or suicide, that the means of death is irrelevant and the substance is also irrelevant. It might be alcohol, it might be fentanyl, it might be heroin. It doesn't matter. If the individual died, from a substance use related cause and they have um and and there it was the, the root cause is substance use related we're here to support the people of massachusetts whether they are have lost their loved one whether they work in this field or whether they themselves are inner seeking recovery oh that's quite a background did you then um Oh, before I do that, let me ask one question. In your description, in your word usage, I know that you used substance use and not substance abuse, which with my background, jobs I've worked and everything like that, it's always been substance abuse. Is that a conscious change? Um, it is very conscious. Um, there's there's a lot of stigma associated with um with substance use. And um, once you define it as abuse, you are now creating kind of this judgment there. And the truth is, is there isn't a person on the planet that doesn't use a substance. Um, you know, what is that substance? Well, in some cases, it might be alcohol or it might be heroin. In other cases, it, it, it might be coffee. It might be cigarettes. It might be pizza. Um, but we're all using, we're all using substances. It's a very natural part of being human. And the people do use it, and um, you know, it, 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 they, what we want to do is try to fight that stigma because stigma is really nothing but a form of discrimination, and it, it really is. Um, you know, part of what I didn't share in my introduction is is my personal relationship with with uh, substance use. Is um, my son Vladek is currently in chaotic use, and has been in severe chaotic use for about three years. And has been in use for now um, about ten years, and um, you know, as a upper middle class white male, I don't usually experience discrimination. Yet, right. um, you know, taking him to the hospital at a couple of times throughout this process, 
I have been treated like a criminal. I've literally had the, even though I'm sitting there calmly and quietly, just you know, politely, I've had the security guards of the hospital stand on both sides of me as as I'm waiting in the rating room um, for no apparent reason. And it's and there's just little things like that that you you see this discrimination that exists all over the place. Um, you know, it's the only medical condition that's both con- it's called a medical condition. And yet they, um, you know, don't really treat it as such. They will say that you're, you're, it is medical, but yet while you're still high, you um, are released from the, they don't try to put you into, you know, some, of, some programs do offer support, but for the most part, um, often the answer is, is um, you know, please leave our emergency room once there's no longer that immediate emergency. And if somebody were to go there with, you know, a heart condition or, or something else, they wouldn't say, oh, well, we got your heart out of the way. Now move one out of here and we'll, we'll get you done. They would want to help, you know, solve the overall underlying condition and work with that. And yet that's the discrimination that exists. So the word use is really to help to fight some of that stigma. And it's, it's, it's to make it, you know, that we're thinking about it um, in a different way, I guess, is what it boils down to. Well, you have said so many insightful things, so let me try to pull them out one by one and hope I can get them all. Um, First, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, Again, in my experience, I've always been, it's always been termed substance abuse. I will now make a conscious effort to change that to substance use. I agree with your explanation, and I support it 100%, so I will try to change my habit. That's the first thing. When you mentioned stigma, that is definitely one thing I wanted to touch on today. Um, first, I respect that your organization, and I applaud your organization, for going beyond just that very niche topic But for today, if we could just concentrate on that for a little bit, I have some friends that are very near and dear to me who lost their son by suicide. And that's also another word that I don't like because of the stigma attached. And he was one who was, as you term it, in chaotic use, a phrase I have never heard. Uh, in in the relationship to substance use. Again, a phrase that I think is so accurate. The stigma you encountered in the hospital, I know uh, from my work with hospice and the elderly, from taking care of my mother herself, and even uh, with my husband, when the decision was being made, can he come home or not, there was always a discussion about, are they safe? Is it safe for them to go home? What what does the floor surface look like? Is it something he can trip on? They were just out going out of their way to make sure he would be safe. But as you describe it, all they want to do is get rid of you. They might treat an emergent symptom or issue, but then they just release you without any concern at all for safety. So not only does that person get judged, but anyone who is there with them gets judged as well. Is that correct? Well, I think it's very, very true. I think the judgment goes all the way around. Um, there's, um, I think, still a very much a misnomer that it is a, a moral or ethical failing, that somehow someone has done something, and right. thus, because of that, they, they don't deserve um, the treatment. Well, you know, even that to me is a very false premise. Sure. I mean, how many how many people end up in the hospital with heart conditions because of a lifelong choice of, of lack of exercise and exactly. overeating? 
Exactly. Um, and yet we don't. We treat them with full honor and respect, right. and, and we do everything we can for them to help them medically. So, it, but there is this um, less than mentality, and that less than mentality, to your point, spreads well beyond the individual. It spreads right. into the the family. It spreads into the community. It spreads into all aspects of um, of of how people are treated and how it's dealt with. It's beginning to change a little bit, but sadly, there's still a lot of a lot of stigma and thus discrimination that really exists in this in this world. Right, right. So, anything we can do to help affect that change is going to be well worth our time. So, how then, if you lose someone that you love uh, by overdose, whether intentional or not, how does that stigma? work in the grief journey for those left behind? Well, I think it complicates it in, in, in many potential ways. I mean, I think that one of the things that happens is that there's this kind of feeling like, well, the person kind of deserved what they got. And so the, the society as a whole may not necessarily turn towards the person hurting. They may turn away from the person hurting. Uh, the person and people hurting may also be afraid of what they're going to encounter if they share that their loved one died. So um, they isolate more and they're in a situation where they're not able to express their feelings and express their concerns. And, you know, the, the, the fact is, is if someone died from an overdose, they died from an overdose. That is one fact of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, there are literally millions of other facts. And how many of us would want to be judged by one fact in our lives? And so you know, that's, it's just so wrong. Um, and one of the things we also do is um, we have a site called honoringthemany.org where we try to allow people to express the full impact of who people were and are as human beings. Um, you, know, you can share a picture of your loved one. You can share a story of your loved one. There's no charge to do so. And um, the concept is is that it's a lot harder to discriminate, discriminate and stigmatize against a person. Oftentimes when um, the epidemic is spoken of, if you listen to it on the news or you follow it, they talk about it in terms of numbers. They talk about it in terms of statistics. It's often not spoken of much differently than you'd hear someone talk about you know, what's happening in the economy. And, and it, that's not true. It's, it's human beings. It's lives. It's people who mattered and made a difference. And we all too frequently fail to focus on that in terms of what's really happening. Okay. So in the case of, for example, my, my friends, they have, in fact, in many ways, isolated themselves. They did tell people what happened. And the father actually was the one who found their son. And that has really complicated everything for him to an extraordinary amount. But how might someone like me, when you know of something like that, when the people have been honest and straightforward about the situation, how can we do a better job of supporting them in their grief? Well, we have a, we have a peer grief support model we call River and that has to do with the, the river has five intentions. And the five intentions, although river is a mnemonic that helps us remember it, the intentions don't have to occur in this order. And in fact, don't. They overlap and occur in multiple orders. But it's relate, invite, validate, empower, and reassure. And by doing that, 
We can connect with people. We can let them know that they are not alone. We can better understand where, where, where they're coming from and what their story is to the degree that they want to share it. We can help them understand that what they're doing and wherever they're at is understandable. It makes sense. They've had this event that occurs in their lives. And of course, they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And at the same time, they can do this. They can go where they want to go with it all. And it will be a lifelong journey. Whatever that journey is, it's going to be a lifelong journey. And we can walk with them, not ahead of them, not, not in front of them, but walk beside them and truly listen wholeheartedly and truly make ourselves available and be willing and able to, to let them go where they wish to go, but be willing to go there with them and be willing to, to hear them and be willing to um, speak of whatever it is they wish to speak of, not what we want to speak of, not because we believe it's important, but where, where do they want to go with it? And, you know, if your friend wants to talk about the, um, the substance use and the stigma and all of that, then go there. If they want to talk about the, the wonderful life of, of, their, of, their, of their son and the impact that he had, great. If they want to talk about the frustration and challenges they had while he was struggling, great. Talk about that. You know, wherever that is, be with them in their journey where they're at in that moment. And, um, you know, sometimes we just need to be willing to sit in the mud with someone because that's okay, too. It's not always about, um, you know, it's not about solving anything. It's about letting someone know that they're not alone. Right. I, I love that perspective. And I love the phrase, sit in the mud with them. Was, but one of the things that, that I hear with all your words is the, the sit with them, be with them, but listen. Maybe don't direct the conversation necessarily, but see what they talk about and support them in that telling. So yes, I, I like that a lot. Now let's let's talk a little bit about the organization Support After Death by Overdose. You have a great website with tons of resources and also the um, I, I think you have workshop or workshops to help peer group peer grief group facilitators. I probably didn't say that correctly. But tell us a little bit about your website and about the resources available and your mission. Well, um, Support After a Death by Overdose uh, specifically focuses in the state of Massachusetts. So we are we are funded by BSAS, the Beers of Substance Addiction Services, and we do focus in Massachusetts. And our website has a variety of different resources. It has a peer grief support group locator. Um, now there are, for your listeners who are not in the Massachusetts area, it has the ability to sort by virtual groups. And um, the, the virtual groups do meet and uh, we welcome individuals who are not physically located in Massachusetts to attend those virtual groups. Um, we also offer a variety of different articles and resources on how someone can find help. We produce a monthly newsletter, which uh, anyone can subscribe to that has a variety of different um, outlooks on uh, the grief journey. We have tools and resources for what we call direct service providers. These are individuals who, by the nature of their profession, are regularly affected by substance use loss. It may be a very personal loss, but it may be just the cumulative losses of having those individuals that they work with uh, die from substance use. And we offer peer support groups specifically for people who um, are direct service providers that, that they have. We have a variety of different 
groups that um, some are tied into uh, it might be a men's group it might be you know it might be a group specifically for someone who is um, LBGTQ it, whatever the, the focus is we try to create peer groups that are as peer as possible and all of those different tools or resources are there we also have the ability for someone to go on and order a um, a booklet that is basically surviving the, the death um, that give the we will ship out to anywhere in Massachusetts. We can ship them out to organizations, um, and that's shipped out free of charge. That has some of the basics of what is this journey all about and where does it go. Um, we also have another site that I want to also talk a little bit about, though. That is. Um, we have what we call uh, peergriefsupport.org, which is a sister site of our, our site. And, and if you go to peergriefsupport.org, what you'll find there is um, very specifically, uh, if you are bereaved by substance use, it is a gateway for you to let us know who you are, and we will connect you with a one-on-one um, -on -one individual who will help guide you through finding the tools and resources that you need whether that be one-on-one -on -one peer support, which we offer, or whether that be a, a grief group, or um, whether it be finding other tools and resources so that we're able to help you through that journey and whatever, whatever that looks like. And so we have a variety of different tools, trainings, and resources really on our website. Okay, that, that's super. And, and I'm so glad that the state of Massachusetts is supporting your organization in that way. How did your group grow from just that niche of overdose and substance abuse, substance use, I'm very sorry, substance use, how did it expand to cover the other areas? And if you could maybe just again kind of give some examples of other types of support. Well, it really started, it started there from the very beginning. Um, okay. You know, one thing is, is that the organization that runs Saturday is an organization called Peer Support Community Partners, and that's actually the organization that I'm the CEO of. Okay. And um, we do work in other places. We work with um, some organizations in uh, in Indianapolis, as well as we're you know work trying to work in a couple of other states. And we'd love to bring what we're doing in Massachusetts into other areas. But from the very beginning. Um, we found, you know, we were trying to think of a good name, and Sado D was kind of a catchy name that we thought would be easy for people to remember. It, um, you know, one of the things is is people get, um, you know, grief brain. You probably, you know, may have experienced that yourself when I um, things that you think um, are incredibly easy or simple <laughs> all of a sudden become very challenging. So we wanted to kind of say something if we could get something that might stick in someone's mind. Um, that they would remember, even if they couldn't remember at that moment, even if it wasn't something they needed right then that they could remember. So we, we called it SADOD, Support After a Death by Overdose, is, is what the SADOD stands for. But from the very beginning, the mission has been to support individuals bereaved by substance use in the state of Massachusetts. And we serve three audiences with that. We serve the, the general public which we serve with the, um, what I shared with you, one of the, you know, the tools would be that um, peergriefsupport.org, as well right. as we have the allies and um, the groups. We also serve the, what we call direct service providers, or those people who are in this profession. And uh, we also serve individuals who have some unique needs, who are themselves inner seeking recovery, 
and yet at the same time are um, are still having grief. And by recovery, I even want to be careful with that word because recovery is a word that has many different meanings, and I want to take it in its absolute broadest meaning. Recovery, as we define it, is if someone themselves would define themselves in recovery, and that does not mean abstinence. That means that they themselves are, are, are trying to find recovery, and that may be a very a harm reduction form of recovery, um, and that's fine. We, we welcome individuals, in, in, and we want to provide that support. So from the very beginning, it was all of those things, and it was all of the – when you say the examples – you know, sometimes someone dies directly from an overdose. They, you know, they have a fentanyl or heroin overdose and right. they die. But in many cases, that's not necessarily the case. They may complete suicide due to their complications of their, of their substance use. And that may be where things end up. They may be involved in a homicide that is associated with their, their being involved with uh, substance uses. They may be involved in an automobile accident where they, you know, um, they may have medical complications. Oftentimes, someone, you know, it just over time, they may have, you know, the use of the of substances affects people's organs. And over time, you know, someone may have died from a heart attack or they may die from kidney failure or something of that nature. But it was really caused by years of complications of, of utilizing the substance Um you know, my, my grandfather technically died from sclerosis of the liver. He died from 35 years of heavy alcohol use. Right. That's what he died from. Okay. That, that makes so much sense when you put it that way. Um, our time is kind of getting short, and I, I don't want to forget, again, that many times we focus on the parents. But the grief can be just as difficult, just as complex if you're a sibling or child of a parent, anything like that. If if you are connected in any way and lose someone that you love, you're going to be involved in grief. You also mentioned COVID. Did COVID, I know it complicated so many things, but maybe not did it, but how did COVID complicate this whole topic of substance use and death? Well, you have two pieces there that I want to kind of take separately. One is... Okay. Um, we support someone no matter what their relationship is. Um, you know, it doesn't right. matter if it was a uh, a child or a parent or a significant mm-hmm. other or a good friend or a coworker mm-hmm. or a sibling. Um, all of that, as long as it is a person that you had a significant relationship with that, that mattered to you and you were affected by them, um, that that's all that's important. Um, and in the direct service provider, it may not necessarily even be that you had that relationship with them. It may be that you just are having all of this, you know, you're being affected by, you know, on Monday you saw someone and on Tuesday you didn't, and you may not know what happened to them. Um, So I agree, uh, the relationship, uh, but we do at the same time have groups that are very specific because I have also um, had my sister die, and um, it is very different being a sibling than it is being a a parent. And I've had both of my parents die, and there's differences and there are differences for someone who identifies as a male and how they grieve versus someone who does not. Um, and so all of these uh, pieces, and we try to offer those unique, unique realities. When you ask how COVID uh, complicated this, well, it did two things. One is COVID did um, 
did no favors for the uh, the uh, epidemic. Uh, the isolation that was caused led to additional substance use, um, which led to additional deaths. So, you know, it, it complicated things that way. It also complicated people's grieving journeys in terms of if someone died in the height of COVID, they may not have even been able to have a funeral. Um, right. You know, they may not have been able to be with their loved ones. So there were all of those complications. But how it specifically affected us um, was it we had primarily been focusing on in-person um, meetings and groups and things prior to COVID. And we, um, you know, one of the, I guess I would say, gifts of COVID that has come out of this is we now have a large virtual group that, that we, st- we came from because there for a while it was the only way that support could be provided. And what we came to then realize was that it actually works well for people. Um, there, we have in-person groups, and that works well for people too. But there's a place for both, um, and we offer both. And then that's one of the things that has kind of come out of this. Um, the other piece of it is, as a company, we have um, we've grown virtually. So we have people, you know, we have people in Massachusetts, but we also have individuals who have specialized skill sets that were able to have help and support and work with us that aren't necessarily located in Massachusetts because of the all of the technological advances, you know, like Zoom and even this, you know, even where how we're connecting right now um, have all been improved through COVID. So it had many, many negatives. But at this point, we're, I think, beyond the negatives. And now we're able to focus on how it is, has impacted us and hopefully will allow us to offer greater support to a greater number of individuals. And, uh, you know, there are many people who are still working through those emotional effects, though. And that will be, for many people, a lifelong journey to work through those emotional effects. I, I love everything you said, and especially when you talk about taking some of the negatives that we all experienced, and now we're finding some positives in that. Is it your opinion that people who are grieving if they find a virtual group, which for many people would be easier for them to check into, for example, instead of going face-to-face, can they get as much help from that, from a virtual group, as from face-to-face? The short answer is yes. The longer answer, I think it depends on the person, the nature of the personality of the person. Um, you know, the, the, the wonderful part about it is um, if you and I are able to make eye contact, whether we're making on contact over a, a computer or whether we're making contact in a room, our body has emotional responses that tie into that. So our virtual meetings are done over Zoom where eye contact is made. You're not isolated. You're able to have that connection. You're able to connect with people. You're able to share. You're able to make friends outside of that. So all of those things are very real, very true. Um, You're not necessarily able to get the hug that you might want or need. And so there are those pieces that are different. And for some people, that is a big difference. For other people, it's, it's not as much. I would recommend for someone that, you know, try what works for you because, you know, in some cases geography or timing or mm-hmm. you know life circumstances may say that you're you're that virtual is the right answer right. and i think you'll find that you'll get a lot from virtual but with any grief group any grief support you have to be i think willing to try it more than once because oftentimes it's not going to be everything you imagined that first time oftentimes you may wake up the next morning feeling worse than the day before because you've let all of these emotions out 
But if you're willing to, and you find this, you know, something you're able to keep going back to, uh, my experience has been that the people get a lot out of the virtual. And we have people who have been continuing to go now for, for, you know, coming up on four years on the, on the virtual meetings and find great support and great connection and great community and great relationship and find hope and healing through them. Again, you've said some great things and you have offered so much insight for people uh, in our session today. I, I appreciate you so much. It's time now that I have to wind down, but before I do, I want to turn the microphone over to you. I know we've spent some time already talking about your website and everything, but perhaps you have a message and you want to speak directly to our listeners. We do have listeners around the world, by the way, um, but just tell them what's ever in your heart. And uh, it, this is your turn without me interrupting you. So go right ahead. Yeah. Well, I think the main message I would say to everyone is, is you're not alone. You are not alone. Yeah. One of the big lies of grief is it wants you to believe you are alone. It wants you to believe that what you're experiencing is unique and, and only yours. And the fact is, is that grieving is the most natural and normal and real part of being human. And when you're grieving, what you're doing is having evidence, showing evidence of your humanity. You're proving that you're a human being by grieving. And reach out to find that support. You know, the sadod.org is a wonderful place for, for someone you've had has died from a substance use related death. The peergriefsupport.org, that's another wonderful place. Uh, honoring the mini is another place that I would recommend that people look at, but also look out for, you know, if, if your loss is not substance use related, there are other organizations too. And whatever that looks like, whether it's your, your church or you know your religious family, or whether it's an organization like the compassionate friends or, or modern widows or whatever the organization is, reach out because there, there are people who love you, care for you, and um, for me, I have built a wonderful community of brief people, and I find it to be a wonderful, loving community that you, you can find your way through this journey, whatever that looks like, and you can find meaning and purpose. It doesn't mean that the missing is going to go away. I miss my son every day. I miss my sister every day. But the hope, the purpose, the mission the value of your life is all there and it can be found. So please reach out. Thank you again so much. The word I'm going to cling to that you said, and it wasn't, uh, I don't know that it'd be really obvious to people, but one of the things in my grief that would always seem to pull me a bit more forward instead of miring me where I was on the couch was anything hopeful, anything that gave me just a nugget of hope. And you used that word hope. So I'm going to venture forth and say to all of our listeners, even if you have lost someone, period, that's it. If you've lost someone, forget the situation for a moment, just a moment, and visit SADOD's website. It, of course, will be in the podcast notes because their website is filled with hope. And even if you read the articles in their newsletter, which also is great, by the way, they will give you hope. And anything that you can read, and we have to, if we're grieving in that initial phase especially, and have that grief brain, there's just too much going on in our heads. So it's nice to read small articles. Just reach out 
just start by doing that reach out somewhere and that will start helping you reach out the next time maybe to something that's a little more focused with your situation but reach out and find hope and where you find hope keep moving toward hope i hope that made sense it did to me at any rate it's time to say goodbye farewell i want to remind everyone to take care of themselves we do promote self-care and obviously finding yourself a peer support group is one of the best means of self-care i can think of when you're grieving it takes a little effort on your part it may not be the first group you go to it may be the second or the third one but just keep trying and eventually you will find somewhere that you feel you fit and fitting in a group like that can help you grow in your grief tremendously so take care of yourselves this week please return again for our next episode as we all continue to live in grief. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover or do you have a question from one of our episodes? Please email us at info at asiliveandgrieve.com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.